Well, friends, as we continue through this Christmas season, we're going through a sermon series called our Christmas Mixtape. And it's a reminder that all these songs that we hear on the radio, that we sing, that as we're shopping or spending time in a loved one's home or even listening to while we drive throughout the city, these songs have profound meaning. These Christmas carols that we've listened to and know by heart our entire lives. And so as we go through this sermon series, a reminder that you can always go to our YouTube channel, look up Bel Air Church on YouTube and follow our Christmas mixtape. Pastor Mike Morgan kicked us off in the first week. My uh, second section came through last week. And now here we are in the third week of this sermon series when we get to perhaps my favorite Christmas song of all, Oh Holy Night. Now, every time I hear this song, I, I can only hear Celine Dion singing it. I mean, I, I lose it every time she sings. I know many famous people throughout uh, the, the decades since the 1800s have sung this song, but for some reason, Celine Dion, her version gets to me every single time. And yet so often I get, I get more caught up in the, the melody and the performance of the song, and I forget about just how profoundly deep these words are. And so my hope is not only for this song, but all these songs in this sermon series, that we would be reminded of the real reason for the season. That as we hear these songs, that it would trigger memories in our hearts and minds of what these songs are all about. I need that reminder. In the midst of the busyness of life, in the midst of you know, the coming and going, in the midst of all the noise of culture, in the midst of the last year and a half that we've had, this Christmas season couldn't have come at a better time. And so as we get to this song, as we go through lyric by lyric, line by line, I want to connect a couple things together. First, I want to talk about the historical background of the song, which is so significant. But also, I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture that this song is all about. So first, with a little bit of the historical background, you know, I, I rarely do this, but I'm actually going to read a section from a writer by the name of Peter Sanfilippo, who wrote this amazing historical account. And his use of language, I, I didn't want to paraphrase, and I just, I'm going to quote him. This is Peter Sanfilippo. This is all about this song, O Holy Night. And he says this. It's a longer section, so hang with me on this. O Holy Night is the product of circumstance in southern France. In the medieval town of Requimare in 1843, the parish priest of the local church wanted to commemorate the renovations to the church organ. This led him to poet and wine merchant Placide Capot, a man with little to no interest in religion. Think about this backstory. Capot accepted the request and on a stagecoat en route to Paris penned the poem Minuet Chrétiens or Midnight Christians. Totally unrelated to the poem, but Capot had one hand, having lost his right hand as a child when his friend accidentally shot him. And the writer says, impress your friends and family next time O Holy Night drops on the radio. The priest suggested to Capot to bring his poem to composer Adolf Adam. Adam was actually a friend of Capot and used the poem as the basis for composition. Adam was a prolific composer, writing music for several operas and ballets, including Giselle, and can be placed in the lengthy list of Jewish composers who've written Christmas music. The resulting carol was simply titled Cantique de Noel, or Christmas Carol. 
and premiered in 1847, performed by local opera singer Emily Loray. The carol was instantly popular, but took a sharp nosedive once word got out about Capot, the writer. You see, Capot was an atheist with strong disdain for religious authority. Outraged, the church leadership banned the song from the French liturgy. It was not allowed in any of the French churches. But the French people wouldn't let the song go. And for a time, it lived on outside the church. Eventually, this tune reached the ears of John Sullivan Dwight, an American Unitarian minister, influential music critic, and part-time Santa impersonator. In 1855, Dwight decided to translate it into English, and the resulting translation is what we know now as O Holy Night. Due to his more religious philosophies, Dwight decided to take a few liberties with Capot's lyrics, and O Holy Night is much less subdued by comparison. Dwight changed Capot's refrain, People kneel down, await your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer to O Night Divine, the night when Christ was born. You see, Dwight was a transcendentalist, essentially a reactionary movement to intellectualism that states there is no, uh, there is inherent, there is actually inherent goodness in everything and everyone. O Holy Night presents the night and the event itself as holy, an element absent from the original. This version became so popular it overshadowed the original. And with a few tweaks here and there over the last 160 odd years, we have the modern version. Another twist to the story. I've heard this for many years, and this author points out, he says, legend has it that Cantique de Noel played a part in the Franco-Prussian War. During a lull in battle on December 24, 1870, French troops started singing the carol from their trench, and it moved the German soldiers so much they began to sing one of Martin Luther's hymns. The impromptu battle of the bands resulted in a 24-hour truce so the soldiers on both sides could celebrate Christmas. There isn't much proof that this actually happened, but it may have led to the growth and popularity of the tune across France at the time and its eventual reinstatement back into French churches. Now listen to this. So, Holy Night is a song written by a Jewish man based on a poem by a French atheist rejected by the church translated by an American transcendentalist, may be sung on battlefields with German troops and most certainly sung every year by more and more singers who don't give a rip about any of this. This song, Oh Holy Night, has a remarkable backstory. And what a great reminder that this message of hope, this message of truth can come from some of the most unlikely sources. That God's love and God's peace and what we're going to dive into today is actually something that transcends even the instruments through which God communicates them. I love this, that God used a French atheist to get across God's message of hope. It's remarkable when you look throughout Scripture that God uses any people who are open and willing to be instruments of God's love to point people to the real hope, the real salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. All right, so as we dive into this carol, this, this remarkable carol, I want to read also a section of Scripture that sets the scene for this song, O Holy Night. This is found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. And as Pastor Kim will preach next week, she will take a look at the, 
the Matthew gospel account of this very moment. But today we're going to take a look at Luke's gospel account. Again, this is chapter 2 and following. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so all went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And so while they were there, the time came for her to deliver a child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And then an angel, the Lord, stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now into Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary she treasured all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This includes the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. Now, again, we're going through these Christmas carols. And ultimately, our goal is to go through these carols to Scripture it's not the carols that preach, it's God's word that preaches. But our doorway, so to speak, to God's word is through these songs. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go line by line, verse by verse through this remarkable song, O Holy Night. And it begins with simply these three words, O Holy Night. Now, what a great reminder that this, this scene that we find in the gospel according to Luke, this scene that the song O Holy Night talks about needs to be oriented in space and time. It isn't this, uh, you know, made up land in a land far, far away in a time long, long ago. This is a historical moment in the overarching narrative of human history. And it's important to understand where we are in the overarching narrative of human history to understand just how significant this night was. Now, you must understand that when we look at history from God's point of view revealed in Scripture, 
To condense it into a couple minutes is simply to say that in the beginning, God created all things and it was good. Out of God's love, God created the heavens and the earth and the animals and everything in it. And actually it says in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, that the only thing made in God's image is you and me, humanity. It's the only thing that God says about creation isn't just good, it is very good. And so there's this beautiful starting of a story that we find in scripture, the beginning of human history that, that reveals God as the creator and sustainer of all things. We even see echoes of the Trinity in the book of Genesis, of, of God the Father and creator, of the spirit brooding, and even the word of God that we later discover in the gospel according to John that that word became flesh. We'll get to that in a moment. But this story marches throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and reveals to us that, that humanity, though made in right relationship with God, lost that relationship when we chose our way rather than God's way. And there's this constant pattern we find throughout Scripture that when people forget who God is and who God created them to be, they forget the life that God calls them into, they forget to, to love their neighbor as their self, they forget to honor one another and God's creation in the ways that God honors them and created for them. We see this unraveling of relationship a relationship that unravels between humanity and God, humanity and each other, humanity and creation, and even humanity with itself. And we see brokenness and death and murder and betrayal enter the human story. And so there's this search for wholeness that we find throughout the Hebrew scriptures. There's this search for for peace and joy and significance and reconciliation. And in moments we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures where humanity turns back to God and remembers who God is and remembers who God created them to be, they're made whole again. They're reminded that they're, they're created out of love, that their lives are for a purpose and that they're called not just to live for themselves, but to live for the sake of others and the glory of God. They're, they're reminded about how to treat the foreigner in their midst, those on the margins of society. And so, again, this pattern throughout Scripture in the Old Testament is one in which God's people remember and things go good, and then they take God for granted. They forget who God is. They co-opt the stories of culture. They begin to worship other gods. They forget who they are. They begin to oppress one another and, and uh, betray one another, and they become less human, and things begin to unravel and there's devastation and heartache and death. And then God comes up again out of love again and again and again and rescues them, mostly from themselves and reminds them of who God is and who they are. And so then they remember again and they come back to God. And so this pattern happens all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And yet there's this constant cycle that they get stuck in. In the midst of this cycle, we begin to hear again throughout the Old Testament prophets saying there one day will be a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ, an anointed one who will rescue humanity from its bondage of sin, who will rescue humanity from its selfish ways and reestablish God's reign and rule and begin to set things right. And so there's this longing, there's this hope, there's this expectation that isn't just a day or a week 
or a season or a lifetime. It is over the course of generations and hundreds of years. I actually have no idea what it's like to live with that level of yearning. One that goes back massive amounts of generations. One in which there's a constant longing for rescue and renewal and revival. I mean, they get glimpses of it here and there. You know, as a graduate of the USC, uh, you know, the football program while I was in college was, was, was awful. And so in the midst of that, we were hoping for a win season. We were hoping to get ahead. And, there, you know, that, that only lasted a few seasons until there was this breakthrough and we began to win national championships. I have a friend who lives in New England and he tells me that the worst season of his life was in 1990 when the New England Patriots went one in 15. He said it was an awful year to be a Patriots fan. And so that whole year, there was this season of longing of hope and eventually they hit that dynasty. But I have no, no framework of what it would be like to be in the midst of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of hope and longing. And when we look at the biblical record, there was this sense of hopelessness of yearning that there would be this one who would come and rescue. An entire people group, the nation of Israel, had this long-awaited expectation for God to show up and, and complete something that God promised long ago through the prophet and the man Abraham. And so it was on this holy night that an expectation this longing perhaps was coming to fruition. You see this song, O Holy Night, goes on and it says, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. We look back on that moment in human history and we can look perhaps with nostalgia, perhaps of our childhood growing up, watching you know, the Peanuts Christmas, or maybe we've grown up watching Christmas specials. Maybe we've grown up understanding about that moment, but we look back in time at that moment. But you need to understand that there was, for many people coming to that moment, there was this mystery of what was happening. There was a unknownness of what was transcending. And this song says it was on that night that the dear Savior's birth happened. Speaking back to history past, the author says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I love this line. I, it's so much easier to, to pause and to read it right now. You know, when I get caught up in listening to the song, this is the moment in the song in the very beginning that I often am just kind of waiting for the crescendo later. And my, my heart and mind is expecting that later moment in the song. And I, and I miss the significance of this moment. You see, the song has reminded us that the world left to its own devices is hopeless. And we see that played out throughout human history. We can turn on the news and see that played out today. There is this weariness. There is this hopelessness. There's this idea that there can be uh, solutions to problems. But ultimately, each of those things, if they're human-made, hit a dead end. And so in this longing, in this expectation, in this hopelessness, the author reminds us that our soul, to paraphrase Augustine, 
Our soul is restless until it finds its rest in God. And so I have a question for you before we continue on. How's your soul doing in this season? Do you find yourself weary? Do you find yourself dismayed? Do you find yourself numb? Do you find yourself just checking out from all the things that are going on? Or do you find yourself having a spirit that is totally filled up, totally satisfied, totally overjoyed? Likely, all of us are somewhere along that spectrum. This song points to Scripture, and Scripture reminds us that our soul, our very being, our mind, the very essence of who we are will never find its rest until it finds its rest in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this song reminds us of how desperate we are. But I got to tell you, it's so easy to cover up that desperation. We can get busy with life. Uh, we can go to retail therapy and just hit add to cart and feel good about the things that we're adding to our life. We can, you know, change where we live. We can change our friends. We can change our job. We can, we can do things and we can kind of manage things, but they're just like band-aids. They're just kind of glossing over the deeper hurt, the deeper weariness that perhaps our soul, we don't even want to acknowledge. And so we have an opportunity as followers of Christ. We, more importantly, as human beings to take moments in our lives to pause and do the hard inward work of reflecting, what's the state of our soul? And I don't know what's going on in your life, but God does. And here I am trying to communicate to you wherever you live, not only in Los Angeles, not only in this nation, but around the globe to know that God is with you. Scripture says that he knows my thoughts and your thoughts, the state of our soul better than even we do ourselves. And miracles can happen when we actually pause enough to say, you know, I'm actually not doing okay. I might be doing okay in all these areas of my life, but this one area, this one relationship or in my work or in my health or in my finances, you know, in this one area, I'm just... I'm not doing okay. And beautiful things can happen when you open yourself up. It's so countercultural, by the way, to do this. Our culture says you've got to have yourself together. You've got to put a smile on your face, especially in this season. If some of you are spending time, you know, with family or friends or coworkers at Christmas parties, you know, we, we put that, that smile on our face. But there is a deep work that we have an opportunity to do right here and right now. Again, to repeat myself, to ask ourselves the question, how is my soul? This song reminds us that there's one hope, one answer, one solution for the state of our brokenness. And it happened on that night that Jesus was born. The song continues. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. When you look at the historical narrative that is found in scripture that this song points to in this one line, it gives this picture of dawn and daybreak, not just ushering in a new day, but ushering in a new reality. Some of you have heard me tell the story many years ago about how uh, I was camping with some friends and uh, we were underprepared we went up into the Angeles Crest Mountains. It's the mountains above Los Angeles. And, you know, as a Boy Scout, as somebody who's been camping most of my life, I, 
I thought I was prepared. We, we looked at the weather and we went camping and, and we thought that we had enough warmth to get us through the night. Well, we didn't realize uh, that an, an Arctic front actually moved through. And though there was no snow, no rain, it actually got down into the teens. Yes, this is right outside Los Angeles, up in the mountains. And it got so cold that we were unable to fall asleep at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight. One evening, we, were, we were shivering. You've heard me tell the story before that we were desperate to warm ourselves up. And so my friend had the idea, you know, we're in our sleeping bags, but he, he thought, I've got to get into something else just to get more warmth around me. And so he, he took everything out of his backpack and began to stuff his body inside the sleeping bag into his backpack, trying desperately to warm himself up. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. And so I take everything out of my bag and I start pulling myself into it, doing anything in my power to warm myself up. Needless to say, it didn't work. Nothing worked in our own strength. And one o'clock, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., nothing was working to warm ourselves up. And then we began to realize the only way we would get warmed up to get out of this frigid experience, this uncomfortable experience, this, this experience that got me to the edge of almost saying, I don't ever want to camp again, at least not in the wintertime. We knew that the only solution would be daybreak. And I'll never forget. I mean, it's been like 20 years now since that moment. I'll never forget what it was like to get outside the tent, realizing that the tent wasn't keeping us warm, to get outside the tent, still with the sleeping bag around me, trying to get as warm as possible, and finally, 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 seeing the first ray of light shoot over the ridge, through the pine trees, to hit my eyes and my face. And as that sun began to rise, little by little by little, warmth began to go through my skin, deep to my bones. And I look back on that moment and I realize that was a microcosm of the grand narrative of human history played out in metaphorical form. Desperate need, trying in my own strength, nothing working, but realizing that something outside of myself had to rescue me from, yes, it was just cold, yes, it was just discomfort, and yet I experienced the massive shift of reality at daybreak. This song reminds us, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, that a new reality was set into motion the moment Jesus was born. A complete new reality. More than just warmth, more than just sunshine, it was the birth of hope, the birth of salvation, the birth of restoration, the birth of reconciliation, the birth of all the things that we've ever been longing for in our life. It was the beginning of what God has set into motion. It wasn't just any child being born. This was God in the flesh being born, which in and of itself is a mind-boggling, mysterious reality. Again, remember what Scripture says is that this wasn't just a perfect human being that lived the perfect life, that was a good teacher and a good man who did miracles and just, you know, kind of lived better than everybody else. And the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that we should just imitate Jesus and live like him. No, 
What scripture says is that part of the Trinity, the Son of God, also known as the Word of God, became flesh, uncreated this member of the Trinity in deep relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit that has existed for all of eternity, whom Scripture says, as we covered last week, sustains all things by the power of his word. As Colossians says, it was through Jesus that God created all things, created the heavens and the earth, the animals, everything in it, created you and me. That God eternal as God the Son was born on that morning, not as an adult, not in power, not having it all together, but was born as a helpless baby having to learn how to eat, having to learn how to walk, needing to have its diaper changed. I mean, I have Muslim friends who say, this is blasphemy to say that God would dirty God's self. And that's what God did. He came to us and he was born in the most lowly human condition as a baby, but also in one of the most lowly places possible. Pastor Kim is going to get into this in much more detail next week as she describes the manger scene. But we need to understand just how, how low God was willing to go to meet all of humanity in its brokenness. And what a great reminder that this new reality that was set forth is for all people. Again, I want to come back to the gospel account of Luke. Remember what the, the angels said to the shepherds. This is in verse 10 of Luke chapter two. But the angel said to them, to the shepherds, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. Good news of great joy for all the people. How significant this is that this new reality isn't just for the nation of Israel. It's for, it's for everyone. And any misperception that, the good news of Jesus Christ is just for a select group of people misses God's heart. It misses what God has revealed to all of humanity throughout scripture. This is good news of great joy for all the people. Now remember, good news or the word gospel was a very loaded, actually political word in the first century. You see, the good news or the gospel wasn't something that was only found in Scripture, but there was the good news or the gospel of Caesar. You see, whatever king, whatever royalty was in power would have heralds, would have messengers, and they would go ahead of armies. They would go ahead of the trumpeteers, and they would announce the good news. They would announce the gospel that Caesar, who in the first century was referred to as the savior of the world, they would announce that Caesar, the, the, the emperor of Rome, has come to give salvation to all the people. Now, what's so remarkable is that in the first century, people experienced the gospel and the good news of Caesar in a negative way because it was at the end of a sword. You either needed to bow your knee in obedience to Caesar or off with your head. There was this 
forced worship of Caesar. There was this oppressive sense that if you were not a Roman citizen, which the Jewish people, many of them weren't, that you had to bow down, you had to say that Caesar is Lord, you had to acknowledge him as savior of the world, you had to give your allegiance to him, and you had to pay a remarkable amount of taxes to him. And so in that political climate, the nation of Israel is not living in their own sovereign land. They have these hopes, they have these expectations, they have this longing for the Messiah to come. And some of them thought that the Messiah would come and and wreck the Roman Empire and reestablish the Jewish nation. That wasn't God's strategy, but they were hoping for that. They were expecting for that. But when they first hear that there is the gospel, the good news, I need you to know that they heard that through a very political first century lens. But this gospel, this good news, was very different. You see, it wasn't just for Roman citizens. So we heard here in Luke, it was for all people. And this good news of great joy that was for all people didn't come at the edge of a sword that you need to obey or die. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't that that you must die in order for God to, to love you, but in actual fact, God was willing to die to communicate God's love to you. You see, on that morning, a new reality began where Jesus was born, and yet he grew up, and he lived a perfect life. Scripture says that he was without sin. He did miracles. He taught. He showed us how to live in love. He was the most beautiful life that ever lived. Scripture says, yes, he was tempted in every way we've been tempted, yet was without sin and chose to go to the cross, not as a victim. He didn't go kicking and screaming. You see, this is absolutely essential to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just this beautiful person that was killed and a tragedy. No, in actual fact, he knew that the law that was required to cause us to measure up to be fully human, to be holy in God's eyes, was something that no human being could ever do. And so Jesus, he constantly said, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, the Mosaic law. I've come to fulfill it. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he put an end to death because he defeated death. He put an end to us needing to feel like we have to fulfill the law. We don't disregard it, but Jesus fulfilled it entirely for us. When Jesus went to the cross, he put an end to sin itself. Because what God did on the cross, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The book of Romans says that God demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what this song is all about, that on this holy night, a new reality began. But it was so much more than just his birth. You have to look at the full life of Jesus, not just 33 years, but in the context of his eternal existence. And when you realize that out of love, God gave his son, that rather than the gospel of Caesar, the gospel of Jesus 
causes us to worship, yes, causes us to kneel in reverence, yes, causes us to kneel in obedience, yes, but from a very different motivation. You see, the gospel of Caesar was kneel or die. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus saying, I died for you. Now will you let me live through you? Will you let me be Lord of your life? Will you follow me into this life to show you what it truly means to to love, to be a person of peace, to be a person of joy? You see, Jesus' life and death, yes, it demands a response, but it's very different. It's not the end of a sword because Jesus took the hit for us. And so the writer of this carol goes on and says this, fall on your knees. But don't hear that as on the edge of a sword, fall on your knees. It's out of reverence. It's out of awe. It's out of tremendous thanksgiving. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night divine. When Christ was born. Oh, night divine. This is the beginning of all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our expectations. Let us respond in worship. The hymn goes on. This is a a verse that not every singer sings, but I want to include it. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So led by light of a star, sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from Orient land. The king of kings lays thus in lowly manger in all of our trials, born to be our friend. I love that last line, in all of our trials, born to be a friend. We all need good friends in our life. Not just friends who celebrate us in the highs of life, not just friends who will celebrate us on our birthdays or when we have great accomplishments, but we need friends who are with us in the trials of life. Friends who are with us when we make mistakes. Friends who stay with us when we get selfish. Friends who are committed to us when we lack commitment to them. Friends who aren't fly by night, who aren't conditional, but friends who are with us through thick and thin. This hymn reminds us that we have a friend unlike any other human friend, the greatest friend of all, and his name is Jesus. Who doesn't ask us to repay him for all the ways in which he's laid down his life for us who doesn't keep score, who doesn't look with a disapproving eye, but a friend who is always faithful, a friend who is always there, a friend who is with us, yes, in the highs, but also a friend who is always with us in the lows. And one of the things that I've discovered in the last year and a half as I've talked with more and more people in our church family and around the globe is how lonely people have been in this season and how much all of us as humans, we need somebody to do life with. And this carol reminds us that the starting point for the greatest relationship we can ever have in our life is God, through Jesus Christ. That even when physically alone, you have a friend in need, a friend who is always there, a friend who always listens. As you spend time in prayer, as you spend time in God's word, yes, it might not feel different. You might not be able to obviously hug Jesus like you would a friend. And yet I've talked to so many people whose faith in this last year and a half has deepened in such profound ways because lacking some of the 
the relational interaction that they've been used to have been so desperate that they finally just said, okay, God, I've got nothing, but I've got you. And their faith has grown. Their prayer life has grown. Their their trust and relationship with God through Jesus has deepened in such a remarkable way. And they've shared with me that actually finding themselves whole in their relationship with God through Jesus actually enables them to be better friends to people in their life. Enables them to be more patient, more forgiving, more loving, more understanding. I've had people tell me that in this last year and a half as they've grown their relationship with Jesus, it's enabled them to be better brothers and sisters, husbands, coworkers, neighbors. You see, there's a friendship that can ignite all the other friendships in our lives in a holistic, loving, peace-filled way. And this hymn reminds us that his name is Jesus. The last verse goes like this. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. It's my favorite section of the whole song. I can picture Celine singing it. Truly he taught us to love one another. How much do we need that in this season? I mean, to really love one another. It's easy to love people who are just like you, who look like you, who vote like you, who like the same music, who, you know, are our people. You know, I've heard that phrase so much in the last year. People saying, oh, oh, there are people. And I've seen this tremendous amount of tribalism rising up, and I understand why it's happening. But there's this sense that people are kind of huddling together with people like them. And yet, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus calls us not just to love people who are like us, but to love all people. To love the people that irritate us. They come to different conclusions about life and its problems and its solutions than us. To truly love, not to tolerate. This is in a much deeper way. It is to love in the way that God loves us. A patient love, a joyful love, a sacrificial love, a laying down your life kind of love for somebody else. Scripture calls us, Jesus does, to love our enemy, not just our neighbor, but our enemy is ourself. And so this new reality that Jesus initiated, inaugurated with his birth through his entire life in the context of all of eternity shows us the true source of love. Our world desperately needs love. We need it in every pocket of society. We need it in every neighborhood. We need it in every workplace. We need it in every societal, socioeconomic layer in every nook and cranny of society throughout the globe, love is so desperately needed. But the deepest form of love is love that comes out of the overflow of the love that God gives us in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm asking you as part of our church family to commit to the next year, 2022, to be a year where you loved more than any other year of your life. God is calling us, and I'm going to talk about it in the sermon, on the day after Christmas to go tell it on the mountain. 
in every sphere of influence of our life to be people of love, to be people of grace, to be people of mercy, to be people of forgiveness. And we need this season to remind us of where the source of that love is. Truly taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. You see, this is the opposite of human-made religiosity. His law isn't measure up or else. His law is love. And the goodness of Jesus is peace, not condemnation. It's peace, not judgment. It's peace. So come to him, perhaps for the thousandth time, recommit your life to him, or perhaps for the first time in your life, open up your heart to him. His gospel is peace. His law is love. Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. One of the significant things that has happened, not through just American society, but around the globe in the last year and a half, is this rising awareness. And with that rising awareness, uh, a conversation that has turned into debate, that in some places has turned into animosity over is oppression something that exists in our society? Does slavery still exist in different forms in our society? And these are essential conversations for us to have, to listen well, to be present well, to seek to understand before we pass judgment. And this hymn reminds us of this great truth that the chains that need to be broken, not just physical chains, not just emotional chains, not just relational chains, not just spiritual chains, not just financial chains, not just racial animosity chains, but all the chains that can ever exist in our life, those chains can only be broken through the power of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no movement. There's no law that can be passed. There's no educational program. There's no governmental policy. There's no human leader that can break chains like Jesus can. And this next line is key. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. The source of biblical justice, the source of reconciliation, the source of breaking oppression only happens through the power of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. As we move out into this world, as we see things and as we wanna get involved in things and as we wanna be people of hope, be people of peace, as we wanna be chain breakers, as we wanna speak out against oppression, as we wanna be part of biblical justice, let us never forget that the source, the power, the catalyst always has to be Jesus Christ in and through us. And so as a church family, as we move into 2022, I'm praying that we would be a church that is known for its love, that is known for doing all things out of the power of Jesus in and through us, that we would never try to do it in our own strength, that we would be involved in things in this world, but that we would always know that it is Jesus Christ in us that is doing that work in a powerful way through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we wrap up, sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus, raise we, we. Not just I, not just you, we. The importance of singing these songs together in community. 
We were not created to live our lives in isolation. We were created for community. And so I invite you, if you are not already involved in some form of Christ-centered community, to make that your New Year's resolution. And if you live somewhere else, we want to help get you in a community. Whether that's a local church where you live, or if you can't find a local church, we want to start life groups in your area. And some of you, you've even joined communities online. Don't miss this opportunity to be part of a community of faith, not just isolated individual watching into the ministry of Bellard Church, but to be the church. Be part of this remarkable community of 65 years following Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. So my hope is that in this season, we would look back on that holy night. We would see that that began a new reality. It changed the course of human history and our lives as well. As we continue on in worship, stick around for the very end for a special invitation for something else I have for you. But right now, let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this song written by an atheist, banned from French churches, and yet couldn't be let go by the people in France. And it comes to us today, pointing us back to your word that reminds us of the true source of peace, of joy, of justice, of love. May we turn our hearts and our minds back to Jesus on this day and every day. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. We say together, amen.